Hi everyone, this is Ida Josefina and you're listening to Reverb by Sane. Today my guest is Dr. Isabel Millar. Isabel is a philosopher and psychoanalytic theorist. Her work focuses on AI, sex, culture, film and the future. She published her first book, The Psychoanalysis of Artificial Intelligence with Palgrave Lacan series in 2021. As well as extensive international academic speaking and publishing, Isabel makes frequent media appearances across a variety of platforms. She is currently a research fellow at the Center for Critical Thought, the University of Kent, and faculty of the Global Center for Advanced Studies, Institute of Psychoanalysis. Her next book, Patty Politics on the Government of Sexual Suffering, is forthcoming with Bloomsbury in 2022. In this episode, Isabel and I cover a lot of ground. Isabel shares her personal journey into philosophy and psychoanalysis. We talk about what psychoanalysis actually is, the process of building a conceptual thesis, what it means to look at the four Kantian questions from the perspective of psychoanalysis, and the role of philosophy in today's society. Personally, I learned a lot from this conversation and have certainly been enjoying the new rabbit holes I've found myself getting into as a result. Hope all of you find this equally inspiring. I now bring you Isabel Millar. I'm here with Isabel Millar. Welcome, Isabel. I'm really excited to be chatting with you. How's it going today? Hi, Ida. I'm, I'm really happy to talk to you too. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Just wrestling with my cat, but other than that, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Normal, classic pandemic conditions um, to be wrestling with a cat and doing podcasts. So, um, yes, I'm, uh, I'm really excited about you sharing your story and telling our listeners a little bit about the book that you've written called mm-hmm. The Psychoanalysis of Artificial Intelligence. So we could just get started today with um, you telling us a little bit about your background. Who are you? What do you, what do, you do? And how did you get here? <laughs> how did I get here? Um, well, okay, so... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a philosopher and a psychoanalytic theorist, and I suppose my journey to getting here was quite um, labyrinthine. Uh, I didn't sort of take the the straight route through BA, MA, PhD. I kind of had like other things going on um, between those those milestones, I guess. So I, I did, you know, I began doing philosophy when I was like 17. I did um, I did A level philosophy actually, and then I. Um, went to Sussex and did my undergraduate in philosophy. And after that, I kind of um, went and and did other things like a lot of people do after university and not being um, particularly interested in studying anymore. (laughs) I got sidetracked by other um, less edifying things, shall we say. Uh, (laughs) So so I, I went to Spain and I worked in television and I did other sort of things but nothing particularly intellectual put it that way and other things that were happening in my life you know um on the sort of romantic front with various um unsuitable partners kind of <laughs> ended up after quite a few years of being there making me very unhappy and kind of depressed and um ended up having a big breakup came back to England and I was sort of quite um at a loss of what to do with my life because I think with a lot of people when you do when you kind of train as a philosopher and then you go out into the world and then the world doesn't have a place for you because it's like well what can you give up you know you just use your brain and think thoughts that nobody's interested in and at that time it was just there was just no avenues that I could see that were offered for the type of skills that I had and um because in a way like academia even then it was it, it it wasn't really something that uh, I felt was a was an option either 
Um, I thought it was quite a unexciting option, put it that way. Anyway, so so coming back to England, I um, had a sort of bit of a terrible time because quite soon after I arrived back, my mum got cancer and then she died within six months oh, and we sold our house. And then it was kind of like a big, you know, life-shifting things when you sort of lose everything that you had under your feet and you suddenly have realise, okay, what am I? Who am I? What do I have? And, you know, it was that point I was like, all of the things that I was, I had de- I had deserted because the sort of um, security that I had in my own intellect, in my confidence as a person, had sort of been eroded over the years of being in, in, in Spain, not not because of Spain per se, but because of the relationship that I was in and the man that I was with who um, I don't think w- was necessarily aware of the sort of personality that I had or the, the, the capacities that I had. And I think that happens to a lot of women, to be honest. Um, yeah. But it, it made me so unhappy to the point where I was desperate because I, I didn't have anything of my own. And um, I'd been completely disenfranchised sort of intellectually, as it were. And when I say that intellectually, I mean, you know, because you can be disenfranchised financially, which I was as well through that situation. But more detrimental to me was the fact that I I had sort of lost my place in the world. And, um, you know, going out with someone who was very successful and he had his career. And then I was like, well, who am I? You know, anyway, so these kind of combinations of factors and then your family situation kind of explodes and and so I I decided well actually what I want to do is go back to what I always have loved which is philosophy and thinking and and ideas and so um I I I started a master's degree at Birkbeck and which which actually was inspired by seeing Slavoj Žižek on the television doing the um Mm. the pervert's guide to to cinema and and that's when I kind of re um connected with psychoanalysis which I had been uh involved with during my undergraduates but hadn't hadn't really taken it much further and it's it was like wow okay this is a whole new dimension of of thinking that opened up for me so I started my master's degree and um got involved in lots of other other things political things and and sort of turned my life around again quite a lot and then I had another massive um sort of life disaster um, that one of my, I was seeing somebody and then quite su- soon after we broke up, he was killed and it was sort of a very oh dramatic, um, a dramatic event in my life that was sort of like exploded again, what I thought that, you know, I wanted to do and who I was. And so that kind of coincided with the beginning of my PhD. So then I started to be, to do my, my PhD and I, and, and, and all along the, the journey, like I was getting more and more. Um, immersed in the the sort of um, intellectual world and the 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 just the world of books and thinking and being completely um, immersed in ideas and it became very uh, structuring for me and really um, a refuge, I suppose, because it was something that I had control over and it was yeah. very comforting that. I could um, have complete dom- dominion over this. Nobody could take that away from me. Nobody could. Uh... I can I can relate with that entirely. I think I've taken personally in my life. I've also um, really relied on that thought of at least at the end of the day, even if everything goes to shit and you know whatever fails and whatever relationships 
no longer exists. Like mm -hmm. I'll always have my thoughts. And I exactly. think that's somehow incredibly comforting. Um, there's so much in your story that's super fascinating. I think it's um, tragic and at the same time, almost a bit um, funny at times to think mm. that you have to go through all of this life fuckery <laughs> that will naturally just bring you to the Kantian questions exactly. <laughs> because they've just, they're just forced on you. They're not yeah. coming out from the books. They're just, you know, on the streets as you're going about exactly. life trying to survive. So um, that's very, that's very interesting. And I hope um, a glimmer of hope and in inspiring at least for me. And I hope to some of our listeners as well, because I think a lot of us go through all kinds of, all kinds of awful things. And, and I think that's just a very beautiful story. So um, maybe you could open up a little bit like what the, you know, like how you got from philosophy to psychoanalysis and what's mm -hmm. the relationship between the two? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously when you, when you kind of study philosophy, well, certainly in this country, um, depending on what institution you do it in, lots of our places are sort of analytic, um, oriented, but I, I did much more continental philosophy, but. So you kind of do intersect with psychoanalysis in sort of literature courses, but it's never sort of, um, oh, well, it's often not taught as a, as a clinical practice or you don't really get the in-depth side of psychoanalysis. And so whilst I had come across obviously Freud and Lacan in my undergraduate, I didn't know them very much in depth. It wasn't until I encountered um, Zizek some years ago that I realised the connection and the sort of theoretical basis of the connection between Lacanian theory and philosophy um, conceptually. And it was this sort of um, intersection that on a sort of um, ontological, epistemological level that I was really fascinated by. And so when I began my PhD, um, I was very lucky to to benefit from the fact that at Kingston University in the School of Arts where I was, we had a, uh, a, a department for psychoanalysis to, to teach a, a master's degree in psychoanalysis, which is very rare, actually, because it was taught by practicing clinicians as well as, you know, um, cultural theorists and, and academics. So we got the kind of full three-dimensional view of psychoanalysis as not just a sort of um, the genealogy of the literature of psychoanalysis, but the real clinical live meaning of it and why it's important and why it's vital for thinking about subjectivity um so so the 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 kind of um milieu of lacanian psychoanalysis that i was becoming immersed in really highlighted for me the question of um subjectivity and structure and all of the complexities relating to language and um and sort of existence that the Lacanian sort of um, world opens up for you. And and I guess that um, I was particularly interested in this question because I started to think about technology and relationship between humans and technology in my, my mm. master's degree. Uh, it became much more enriched by the, the tools afforded to me by psychoanalysis. And, and you, know, you know, the question of the, the relationship between psychoanalysis and, and philosophy is one which, you know, is, is sort of very... Uh, complex and people study it now as a, as just a question in itself you know what is that relationship and and also what is psychoanalysis in relation to the sciences which was one of Lacan's questions uh, that he posed in one of his seminars uh, seminar 11 where he 
where he asked the question, what would what would a science be that would contain psychoanalysis within it? So that was very right. much the question of how the psychoanalytic subject um, epistemologically fit, fitted within the sort of domain of science as a um, as a historical um, unfolding. So, like, how how would you how would you actually? Sorry if I'm kind of going into a weird direction here, but how would you actually define psychoanalysis? Yeah, well, the the sorry, let me just sip some water before I answer that question. <laughs> um, so you know, that's a good question because when I when I say psychoanalysis, you know, I'm I'm generally well always referring to uh, Lacan and his mm-hmm. um, the legacy of Freud leading to Lacan. So that would that would be my um, way of talking about psychoanalysis. Other people will, will have others, but um, for you know for most people, psychoanalysis begins obviously with Freud. Um, but you know what is psychoanalysis is a, is a very complex question. But essentially, psychoanalysis began with looking at the question of the unconscious and the question of what is what what. Um, are the motivations for our actions that are not necessarily captured by the idea of the conscious subject, this sort of fully rational and conscious person. Right. So for Freud, this was a question of how do we understand the, the symptoms of people that they themselves don't understand? And the first way that he um, encountered these questions was via the hysterical woman, you know, the hysterical subject, the Viennese woman who was... Um, besieged by various different bodily uh, reactions to her life, you know, and by listening and talking to these women, he, and that's why it was called the talking cure, he he understood something about what it was that was happening to their their bodies that was manifesting through um, symptoms. So he was the first person, he was so radical because he understood that not everything can be can be explained by science, and that was why he was so interested in the question of science for Freud. You know, he really wanted to make psych- psychoanalysis part of science because he thought it could be understood um, by the, the sort of sciences of his time. And um, that, of course, Lacan had a different view of that. But so essentially, you know, for for Freud, the idea that um, that human humans are not just on the surface. There's lots of other stuff going on that we don't understand and that have to be understand understood via language. But um, more than that, you know, the, the radicality of what Freud was doing was to understand that there is something inherently traumatic about being a human, and that trauma he understood as sex. He understood as sexuality, and so you know where people always say. Oh, Freud, everything's about sex with Freud. It's all redu- reduced down to, to sexuality and that's, and that's a bad way to understand human beings. But, you know, I always say, well, this is, that's the wrong way to, to, to look at it. It's not that for, for Freud everything was about sex. It's that uh, for Freud, sex is about everything. So sex is a, is a ontological uh, function, an ontological um, conceptual notion that is um, brought about by the fact that as humans we're born into a body of drives and desires that we don't have dominion over but is at the mercy of all of the other relationships that we are in so our primary caregivers and then the world and then all of these other societal and political things and civilization 
that attempts to um, ameliorate all of those or exacerbate all of those uh, drives and desires. So for him, that, and, that was a trauma. And yeah, I sorry to interrupt. I just I wanted to draw that back into your, your work, actually, which mm. is about the psychoanalysis of artificial intelligence. That's one mm. of the primary things that you speak about, mm -hmm. isn't it? The kind of difference between the sexuality in, in human beings and, mm -hmm. and what that looks like in terms of artificial intelligence and reproduction. Do you want to draw that connection and maybe give a little bit of background as to what the book is actually about, um, what the central sort of questions the research is and how that ties into that differentiation? Yeah. So uh, the, 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 question, this, the book, The Psychoanalysis of AI, is, is, is a sort of... Um, a provocation, really, which attempts to uh, put the question of artificial intelligence within the framework of psychoanalysis. And, of course, you know, already that's a complicated thing because you have to first establish what, what psychoanalysis is and also what what AI is. Um, yeah. But but essentially, um, my, my initial motivation was to was to see how differently one could approach the question of artificial intelligence when you use the tools of psychoanalysis as opposed to the tools of philosophy. And this goes back to the question of the um, the conscious or uh, rational being versus the speaking being, the, um, the question of the unconscious, the question of the body, the question of desire, the question of drive, which is all of these sort of problems that psychoanalysis allows you to think about. Right. Uh, which is a very different way of understanding um, human subjectivity. And, of course, with artificial intelligence, uh, we, we, we have often, or it's often thought about as a, an imitation of human intelligence and sort of like just a sort of um, straight copy. It's like, oh, this is, what, this is what human intelligence is, now we're going to do the artificial version. But, of course, there are so many problems inherent in this uh, sleight of hand because what, what do you mean when you're talking about intelligence? How can um, we just simply replicate something that we actually don't necessarily understand properly and it's much more complicated than people give it credit for? So one of the things that... The first things I do in the book is to try and distinguish the different ways that intelligence has been conceptualised over history and, and looking at the genealogy of that uh, concept and how um, it's not so easy as just to talk about intelligence like that. And then, of course, using that within the framework of psychoanalysis, what does, what does intelligence mean um, for the speaking subject? So... Could you, ex could you explain, like, if you're... Look if you're, if you're uh, approaches from the psychoanalytical perspective, then what would the philosophical look like? Well, so, of course, I can't speak for the whole of philosophy, but I... I <laughs> <laughs> you can um, try. It, I'll try. No, I mean, so in terms of, in terms of how um, my sort of... My gambit in the book is basically to, to, to start off with a provocation that was put to, to Lacan by his son-in-law Jacques-Alain Miller in an interview he gave uh, called... Um, television because it was a broadcast interview on French television so you can buy the book it's called television it's it's, it's I recommend it for people who are interested in the question of what psychoanalysis is mm. so in it in 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 this book in this interview Miller asks Lacan um because Miller sort of inherited the psychoanalytic um after his father-in-law's death he inherited as it were the sort of throne 
of Lacanian psychoanalysis, although he's contested by lots of people and some people don't like him, other people think that he's the rightful successor, etc., etc. But anyway, this is irrelevant. Point is, he asks Lacan uh, the Kantian questions. And what are the Kantian questions? Uh, well, the Immanuel Kant's Enlightenment questions were, what can I know, what should I do, and what may I hope for? Which, for, for Kant, would represent, firstly, the field of metaphysics, secondly, the field of ethics and morality, and um, thirdly, the field of theology and religion. And, and so Millet, in asking this to Lacan, he was sort of provoking Lacan to be a philosopher, as it were. And, and Lacan said, well, mm. no, it's not for me as an analyst to ask those questions. It's for me to, put, to position the subject uh, in such a way so that they may ask the question. So with that framework, I begin the book in a sense of saying, well, in the same way that um, Millet asked Lacan to ask these questions, I'm going to ask these questions of artificial intelligence and then subvert them. So I'm not going to ask them in the philosophical way, I'm going to ask them in a psychoanalytic way, which means taking each question and looking at it from the position of psychoanalysis as opposed to philosophy. So right. that when you're talking about what can I know, uh, the, the classic metaphysical question for, for, for Kant, you're, in, in psychoanalytic terms, talking about the question of uh, one's position within language, the question of sexuation, the question of sexuality, the question of am I a man or am I a woman, which for psychoanalysis is a epistemological question and one which really is at the heart of subjectivity and existence and then the question of ethics what should I do for for Lacan which was was a question that he was very concerned with and wrote a whole um, seminar on devoted a whole seminar to it called the, the the ethics of psychoanalysis he was fascinated by by Kant's um, categorical imperative and fascinated by the question of the ethics of philosophy versus the ethics of psychoanalysis because he saw in Kant's categorical imperative, a sort of almost diabolical endpoint whereby uh, what you get when you follow Kant's imperative to the end is basically an ethics of desire, an ethics of pure desire and jouissance, uh, enjoyment. So he he saw in 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 Kant a the sort of reverse side of it, which was actually the the ethics of the Marquis de Sade, the sort of infamous um, sadomasochistic writer who who wrote about very explosive sexual torture and um, obscene uh, imageries. <laughs> and, and, and so he, he wrote about, he wrote a very famous uh, écrit, uh, uh, essay with, called Kant of Exard, where he kind of reads these two figures together and finds at the end of it that, that Sard is actually a, an ethical philosopher in, in, in the sense of the model of the ethics of psychoanalysis, which is the question of desire and the question of following one's desire to the end. So this question of ethics is one which I'm very interested in in relation to AI. And then the third question is the the question of what can we hope for, which um, for, for Kant is a, is a sort of uh, theological question and also a question of the ends of the sort of teleological ends of rational man. You know, it, are, are human beings um, basically defined by their ability to, to, be ration, to be rational? And also the question of contingency that... Uh, it, you know, the thing that makes us human is this the contingency of of being, as opposed to the sort of um, uh, the sort of um, 
structure of science which as determines us before we we have the ability to to be free so he was interested in that question and and for me that question becomes one of um the question of reproduction the question of the future the question of what human beings are um outside of reproduction and you know it, are are humans only here to reproduce themselves and what what does that mean so so those are the sort and of sorry what kind on. of conclusions do you draw from that um, the conclusions I draw <laughs> are, are not really conclusions. If you can just summarize the whole book, please. <laughs> I'll just summarize the whole book. So the, I mean, so the, the, I just sort of gave you a very, very potted version of the whole sort of structure of the book. And, but, but within each of those questions is sort of a whole world within itself of kind of psychoanalytic theory and trying to really expose psychoanalytic theory to different questions. So for each of those Kantian questions, um, there is a film that I use to explore the idea, um, this, these ideas via the prism of the, the sex bot, which is uh, why I use all these films that have uh, different versions of, of sex bots, because this is a way that I um, have to, uh, to explore the question of sexuality in relation to consciousness and being. And, and I, find that it's it allows you by using fiction it allows you to really sort of explode um metaphysical questions in a way that you know you can't really find outside in the world because we don't have the conditions that sci-fi allows for us but it's it's a way that you can really play around with concepts and and think about um how what what are we talking about when we're talking about relationships with non-humans for example what are we talking about when we're talking about um sex with a creature that can't suffer you know what are we talking about when we're talking about um reproducing non-biologically or reproducing via um creatures that we have made uh capable of um reproducing themselves without our without our help which of course we find in all the different films that i i talk about so in each of those chapters i explode lots of different questions and and think about well um how, how how should we start thinking about these questions? Because at the moment they're not they're not actually here in front of us, but potentially they're questions that we will have to think about in the future. Yes, asking questions will generate a lot more questions. <laughs> I'm sure that you've you've gone through that in in the process of writing this book. But we talked about previously. We talked about also the fourth Kantian question, mm. um, which is is it what is a human being? Is that how it's framed, or what is what is man? Well, um, he, he actually, he doesn't say human, he just says, Matt, what is man? Because that's what all philosophers considered was human, <laughs> just, just man, you know. And which, of course, is very significant for, for psychoanalysis, the question of what is man in relation to woman. You know, what, mm. what is a man, what is a woman? Which is one of the central questions, of course, of psychoanalysis and which is one of the central questions of my book. Um, because uh, essentially the, the question of... of um, Sexuation for for psychoanalysis is one um, inherently tied to a language and and b um, structure um, and more conceptual. Furthermore, uh, jouissance, enjoyment. So for for psychoanalysis, um, the question of whether one is a man or woman is actually a question of how does one structure one's jouissance within language. It's not to do with your biology or your um, anatomy, um, which is why, as far as I'm concerned and as far as a lot of Lacanians are concerned, Lacan was sort of the first queer theorist because 
he, he was the person that allowed one to theorise sex outside of the, the strictures of biology and anatomy and really think about what... what and, and even outside gender, in a sense, because he's, he's really interested in what is the structure of enjoyment that one can discern within certain um, subjective positions. And, you know, what, you can even look at that so abstractly that you can discern a feminine, a feminine structure outside of, a, you know, a human. It doesn't have to be a human. Right. It's just a question of what are we talking about when we're talking femininity and masculinity? And, 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 and for, for Lacan, he abstracted it so far that it actually became a question of mathematics and set logic, um, mm-hmm. set theory, That's sorry. Interesting. Uh, and sort of, so he, used, he actually used Aristotelian logic and, and notations, famously in the graph of sexuation, which we'll find in the book, in, in his seminar 20, to talk about sexuation and the different modes of, of, of um, jouissance that those things entailed. And ultimately, those things are the questions that he drew, he drew from Freud, um, but he kind of abstracted them further and further, and, and they become very important in his theory. So to go back to the question of what Kant does with, you know, what is man? Um, it, you know, in, in, the, in the last chapter of the book, um, I sort of put Kant alongside um, Badiou, who, who is a, a famous philosopher who he's still alive, and he he's one of Lacan's great readers and somebody who's used Lacan and thought along with Lacan um, in all of his work. But for him, philosophy is only possible via the traversal of Lacanian psychoanalysis. And and he is very heavy on set theory and the logic of sexuation, which forms part of um, his, his very conception of human subjectivity. So in the end, my, my kind of ultimate question is the question of you know what is uh, the human subject in relation to um, the sort of mathematization of the subject the question of how do you become a human within uh, all of all of what we what we know about um, human thinking and subjectivity what what is left if you have an ability to completely reconstruct a human um, non-biologically so I end with the film um AI by Steven Spielberg, which is it's quite an old film now. I mean, it's 2000 and something. I can't remember. But uh, it's about a little boy who is a, a child, a completely AI child. So throughout the book, I go from various different iterations of the sex robot. So, you know, you begin with the sort of exterior version of a, of a sex robot. Then you be, then we have a, one that is sort of inside of a human. Then we have one that is one that was born of a human. And then the last version is the child that was completely just constructed as a child. And to me, I find this really an interesting question because the question of the child in relation to AI is something um, really related to how we think about um, the possibility for something to think for itself and the the question of capacity, the question of the ability to uh, grow and learn. And so when we think about AI, we are split between, on the one hand, this idea of this terrible, scary thing that is all-knowing and may devour us and may make us suffer, hence why I used the, the Rocco's Basilisk example in the beginning of the book. And then on the other hand, we have the idea of this innocent thing that we create that then can learn stuff and then has the potential to grow grow and become something else and you know um the whole field of philosophy as it were being 
a question of human lifespan, you know, becoming wise. So this idea of the child to me is really interesting because it's the sort of, um, it's a way to think about uh, the human subject as both innocent and, and, and un naive, but also potentially having the capacity for sort of infinite knowledge. And in this film, the little boy is, is one who spends his whole life looking for his mother. And that's the thing that he, the only thing that he will want to make him feel like a real human boy, not a, not a computer, is that he wants to find his mum. So, you know, it's a very heartrending film of him mm. looking for, for the, the, the one person who can make him feel real. His mother is called Monica, who, which of course means unique um, uh, and, and, and so he, he, he finds, he spends his whole life looking for the, for the, for the mother and spends thousands and thousands of years. And then one, and the last end of the film, sorry for spoilers, but he finds, he finds her mother and he's, you know, amazingly happy and overwhelmed with joy. And um, at that moment he falls asleep or he dies, you know, so he's finally reached the pure jouissance, the, 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 the plenitude of finally confronting his object his mother and and and, yeah. and then he's human and he's dead you know so this idea of the 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 only way that an ai can become human is to to lose something and to be whole but at the same time be nothing because you confronted the wholeness of your of your um being so that's, that's beautiful what what do you, how do you like how do you think about artificial intelligence like what do you think about like um how the public discourse or the 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 public opinion on AI is in general? Do you think it's it's correct or in the right direction, or uh, do you I think th that there are things that are misunderstood? I think there are many many things that are misunderstood, and which was part of the reason I wanted to write the book, which is that I thought that there was nothing out there that had a gave the subjective or sort of psychoanalytic perspective on these all of these questions because. Most of the books that you can find out on AI are, are written from people within the AI studies or on the hard sciences or more in the world of technology, entrepreneurs, or, you know, analytic philosophers who are, who are interested in the question of, you know, robotics or algorithms or programming and this, their relationship to the brain and all the sort of more technical questions around um, the sort of hard problems of, of reproducing thought. You know, you've got the Blue Brain Project in Lucerne, Elon Musk Neuralink, um, all of these other big organisations that are looking at sort of artificial ways of fabricating thought or thinking. But what I what I think is that there aren't many questions around the the actual human question about what what AI yeah. is and what what humans are in relation to AI, and that's why I, I think film is a probably one of the best places to ask these questions and there are loads of really brilliant films that do deal with these questions but it's interesting that the most interesting the most interesting treatments i think of ai are happening in fiction and not in um theory at the moment so that's why i wanted to write this book because i i thought there was a big gap there mm, we have you have to inspire more people to go out and study these things from that perspective um I want to ask you a little bit about just the process of building up this conceptual thesis and sort of your own, you know, personal experiences with this process. Um, and then just one more question at the end about 
the role you see philosophy playing in today's society and how it's sort of handled. So, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, maybe we could start with if you could just you could just you know um, give us some give us some light or shed some light on on the process of building up this thesis. Mm. Yeah, um, well, it's it's a very sort of laborious and stressful process, and you know I think writing a PhD for for everyone is difficult and stressful and sort of very isolating uh, because you have to really sort of get so deeply immersed in your question because essentially even though it's a very long and broad thing that you're doing it all has to come down I mean for a thesis it has to be able to be um, centered around a, a question and 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 therefore the building up of a thesis which this book is actually exactly this it is my thesis um, exactly because I didn't it wasn't edited into a different format. It's, it's basically as it stands, which means that it's a very sort of classical building up of, even though it's a strange book, it's it's a thesis in the sense it's, it has a build up and, a, and chapters that try to answer each stage of the question to, to sort of synthesis. And in that sense, it's quite, I suppose it's it can be restrictive, but at the same time, that that restriction allows you to focus how to how your resources in trying to answer this particular question. So um, because obviously the, the the question is in itself um, interdisciplinary, for me it was really how do I, how do I approach this question and make it as elegant as possible? So it was sort of like, you know, when you have a million things that you want to get into a suitcase and you like have to like, squeeze them all down and like make them into tiny little packages in order for them to fit in so I knew that it was like how do I get all of this stuff into a way that makes sense and there is no one way to do it there is no one um, route through it because it's not like a social sciences question or or any you know question that has a sort of orthodox way it's just really a question of finding your own logic within this um, path and so I suppose I didn't know how what I was going to what I was actually finally going to do until quite far into the process which was um you know built up through writing um essays uh going to conferences doing conference papers and via the sort of build up of layers and layers of my arguments I've I started to see a central problem emerge and I started to see a central um concern that allowed me to bridge my sort of um philosophy and critical theory interests and all the sort of biopolitical questions I had around artificial intelligence with all of the clinical um, psychoanalytic questions around the speech and body and sex and sexuality and I saw eventually emerging by merging them together uh, my concern was really one that could be summed up with with the question of artificial intelligence as a concept and even though when I began the, 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 the study, it wasn't that I was someone madly interested in AI. It just became a way of articulating a set of problems. Right. Um, and then through that, I saw, because I was looking at films so much and I was uh, watching films in order to analyse the que- and sort of think about the questions that I had, um, all of the films I was watching, I realised, were always about um, human embodied AIs and sex and AI and then I started to see wow there is this figure there's this figure that exists in all of these things I analyze and it's this this sex bot this 
creature. And so then I started to think about what is what are the conceptual conditions of this creature and why is it interesting outside of the kind of um, cliches that we have around sex robots that you know you can buy those rubber dolls and stuff in, in outside in the real world. But what what is this figure and and why are humans fascinated by the idea of a a creature that you can recreate artificially and have sex with and or you can make suffer or you can uh, rape or you can do you know which which is themes that happen in all these films what what is that and how does it relate to um our creation of ai more more generally so it all sort of coalesced around this figure of the sex bot and i thought it was quite a sort of nice way of conceptually um linking all of the different concerns i had around the question of artificial intelligence by by using sex bot as a vehicle for my kantian questions so it kind of it happened retroactively, as it were. I, I did all of the research and then I was like, oh, OK, I see that this is what I've been doing the whole time. And then I kind of stitched it back up, which is, I suppose, how we understand any sort of how you write a book, how you write a fiction book as well. You know, you kind of see retroactively what you were thinking along the way and then kind of it give it some It sounds incredibly intimidating and <laughs> inspiring at the same time. Oh, you know, you. when you and I were talking the other day, I was like Googling after how to get a PhD without an undergrad. <laughs> like <laughs> you find out you find a lot of weird websites that tell you a lot of weird things. My Google search didn't turn out to be very productive. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the final question that I, I just I think that you would have an interesting point of view on considering everything that you've studied and looked at is like how do you what do you see like philosophy playing in as a role in, in today's society, like how, mm. how has that maybe also like um, transformed throughout time? Mm. Well, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's a very good question. And one that, um, you know, I'm always moaning about because I, I see that philosophy has been really kind of decimated in the public sphere. It's, the idea that you would have a, a philosopher on television, for example, is just unheard of now. And, you know, that's why it, it, all sort of philosophy, theory, Twitter and theory, Instagram always post the famous video of, of the um, Foucault-Chomsky debate, which happened in the 70s, because no one can imagine something like that taking place now, because these figures, these great intellectual figures are not known about by most people they're not in the public sphere they're not certainly not in, in the UK and uh you know so we have the odd sort of academic who pops up on television who will talk about maybe the history of art or um the scientists and stuff like that so those are sort of acceptable face of um of of sort of intellectualism but there is a massive phobia of of thinking and thought and and theory in the UK scene that is only getting worse and worse because we have a horrible Tory government and <laughs> we are, uh, the, 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 the universities are just sort of horrible neoliberal trash holes where <laughs> academics don't get to do research because they have to do all admin all the time. And, you know, uh, God, I, I, I'm at the moment, I don't teach in a university, in a traditional university because... Um, it's just, it's an awful situation for a lot of people in the humanities because they're cutting down, um, they're cutting out departments left, right and centre 
And if there aren't, if there are not jobs for people with philosophy degrees or psychoanalysis or theory or cultural theory, they're like, oh well, let's not fund these departments. So it's a vicious circle because then you know th these departments don't get funded and um, and 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 the cycle continues. So my, I don't know what I think is going to happen, but I know what I, I think should happen, which is that, um, you know, we need to allow people the funds and the time to think and read and study. And at the moment, that's not encouraged by anything yeah. in society because, uh, because capitalism, obviously, but <laughs> because, you know, everything is about immediate results, immediate effects, and people want to um, have the quick route to everything and everything needs to make money. So in those conditions, it's very difficult for serious thinking to happen. And, and what happens is that as a small amount of people who can do it and who have the luxury, the resources to not have to worry about just the basics of paying your rent and going and feeding your children or whatever, because most human beings don't live in a place or a time where they can and reflect and have that luxury. And so philosophy yeah. has become a sort of luxury, uh, luxury pastime, whereas actually it is an essential tool for humans yeah. it's an essential tool and and you know i think we're just we're just destroying people's capacity to think as well because no one's got any um attention span people can't yes. concentrate on a book because you you're so used to scrolling and watching a video for three seconds it's like okay that's it now i can't think of the next you know i need to move on because i can't uh continue thinking about this one thing and i, I feel the effects of that and that's someone who i didn't grow up with tiktok and all of that crap but i still feel it i'm having i get drawn into all of that stuff and instagram and everything because you can't help it that's what that's how we adapt to our to our technologies and absolutely i think that that is something that is is quite um problematic it's terrifying yeah uh and it's urgent yeah um yeah, and I guess people also end up, you know, people who would have the would have the desire to explore these questions and the ability for whatever reasons, financially or otherwise, um, to do that, then do it in a forum that does generate, for example, an income, which is like more short form stuff, um, like, you know, working as an independent researcher with, you know, just publishing yourself, um, doing that kind of stuff, with, which also obviously has a big impact on on what people are able to study or even look yeah. at if you're able to do it in one week versus five years. <laughs> yeah. Um, those are big differences, exactly. but amazing. Um, this was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank um, you. I really enjoyed it. Um, everyone should go look at Isabel's stuff, um, get the book, the psychoanalysis of artificial intelligence. And is there other places where people should follow you? Uh, well, my website is, um, isabelmiller.com and I am on Instagram and uh, Twitter so you can find all my stuff on there as well amazing all right thanks so much Isabel thank you so much so nice to talk to you